Welcome you into another edition of Meet Me at Mutual. I'm your host, Andrew Shopto, C70 at the bat at C70 on Twitter. With me, as always, Alan Medlock from Red Dirt, Red Bird, and A Medlock One on Twitter. Another busy week of Cardinal baseball, and we are going to get to all of that in a little bit. But um, this week is, um, you know, we've been running some some good guests through here over the whole uh, calendar year, and this week is no exception. We've got Mike Mitchell, who has written the book Mr. Ricky's Redbirds. You can find him at Ricky's Redbirds on Twitter. Mike, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Um, let's just get into what got you started on one wanting to write a book, although I think you've written books before this, but more specifically, what got you wanting to write this book? Yeah, I was really interested in, uh, early Cardinal history and a way to tell the story. And I got interested in the Branch Rickey story for a lot of reasons. One, Mm -hmm. because, uh, I think mainly the public perception of Branch Rickey is his association with the Brooklyn Dodgers and breaking sure. the color barrier with Jackie Robinson. And what I think a lot of people don't realize and don't know is that Branch Rickey spent far more time here in St. Louis. Uh, he broke in as a player with the St. Louis Browns. He started his managing career with the Browns. He managed the Browns and the Cardinals. And he spent uh, more than 20 years in the front office of the St. Louis Cardinals. So he had a profound impact on the history of the franchise. If you think of the last 100 years of Cardinal baseball, essentially the the franchises had four owners, Sam Braden, Fred Sy, Anheuser-Busch, and Bill DeWitt Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ricky worked for Braden and worked for Anheuser-Busch. He was a contemporary of Fred Sy, and Bill DeWitt Jr.'s father, uh, Bill DeWitt Sr., was a longtime employee and worked with Ricky for many years, and Ricky helped him get him to start as a front office, uh, front office executive with the St. Louis Browns. So I can't think of anyone who's had that kind of reach and that kind of span of history when it comes to Cardinals baseball. No, it's, it's tough to, to get uh... – I mean, it's tough to stay in baseball that long, much less with one organization and to have that kind of impact. Um, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. Like you said, most people don't realize that he started with the Browns. And I think to some degree, some people forget that the Browns even existed in the first place. It really feels like your book. And again, I'm probably in the first third of it. I still haven't gotten it as far as, as I'd like to. Um, but it really feels like you don't just get into Cardinal history. You get into Brown's history and you get into baseball history that just has a St. Louis tie. Exactly. Yeah. I wanted to really tell the story of, of, uh, of St. Louis baseball. The subtitle of the book is baseball, beer, scandals, and celebrations in St. Louis. And, and I think I touch on, on, try to touch on all of them in the book. And what I don't, 
I don't know if a lot of people realize just how unsuccessful early St. Louis baseball really was. I mean, we think of the Cardinals and such a dominant franchise in the National League, but there were so many attempts at baseball here in St. Louis and so many unsuccessful attempts at baseball and really the history of the National League franchise of the Cardinals before Ricky and, and owner Sam Braden got involved in the 1920s was not one of success. The Cardinals and the Browns were the last two teams in their leagues to make it to a World Series. <laughs> um, how did you go about then, you know, just the actual procedure of writing the book? How did you do some of this research that uh, had to be difficult because you're looking at stuff um, from before 1900? Yeah, you do. It's just a lot, a lot of reading. Um, I think I started with just reading books on baseball history and every single book I would read, I would go to the back and, and look at the references and bibliography and figure out, you know, what books were they getting their sources from? And then I'd go to that and just kept reading. I probably read uh, easily a hundred books on Cardinal baseball history, St. Louis baseball history. Um, and then you get into uh, all the research you can do now on the internet. It's amazing how many newspapers are now archived on the internet and how much searching you can do on the internet. You can pull up, you know, 19th century articles on, um, baseball games here in St. Louis and around the country. So it really makes it so much easier today to be able to research when you can really just uh, sit at your laptop and be able to uh, access so much history. That makes you miss the days of the old microfish a little bit. Oh, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I get what's thinking of, uh, of college. Yeah, exactly. That's the first thing I thought about. I was like, wow, that's, yeah, it's, I can't remember when it kind of went away, but I mean, it was, you know, easily in college, whenever the, uh, uh, you could search things as easily. Uh, I, I, when you talk about uh, the Bush, you know, when when the brewery actually it purchased the team and took it over, how open were they to open up their books to you during for the research on it? Did you uh, have to go down there for anything, or was it stuff that you could basically search for on the internet? No, it was everything that was publicly available. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of reading the archives of the Post Dispatch, the Globe Democrat, and there was another paper in St. Louis. I think it went defunct in about the somewhere in the 1940s or 50s, called the St. Louis Star Times. So you had uh, three newspapers and uh, complete access to their archives are available online. So when you combine that with you know all the magazine articles, all the books that are out there, there's there's a there's a ton of research and material out there. Really, it wasn't access to material that was the issue. It was just trying to whittle it down and put it into a narrative form was the biggest challenge. Um, and yeah, that's all. I mean, it's got to be. <laughs> It's going to be kind of difficult just to sit down and, and figure out not only how you're going to tell a story, but how you're going to tell a story in your own words. Um, I haven't, I have, like I said, I haven't gotten far enough, and maybe this is a spoiler alert. But I assume, do you touch then on on Ricky's return to St. Louis then in the '60s? Because um, I know I remember reading a, a lot about it in David Halverson's book as well. But um, that that kind of time that we don't think about Branch Rickey coming back in the the sixties, which seems, you know, we think, like you said, we think of him as an, as an old time figure uh, for him to be in kind of almost a little bit more modern game. It's a little weird. Yeah. I do touch on that period. I devote several chapters to, uh, to the sixties and beyond. And one of the things that's really interesting about Branch Rickey is he was an ardent prohibitionist and Mm -hmm. he battled owners throughout his career who, uh, who wanted to sell beer in the ballpark and he was opposed to selling beer in the ballpark. And one of the things he does when he leaves the Cardinals goes to Dodgers, he takes the whiskey heads off the outfield walls at Ebbets field. And so he was always opposed to alcohol around the players in terms of endorsing it or, or advertising it or being sponsors of the team. And of course the great irony of his career is he ends back in St. Louis working for a brewery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was uh, I'm sure he had to do a little bit of rationalization uh, with that. If Branch Rickey had stayed in St. Louis, 
given the dynamics of what St. Louis was versus what New York was, do you think he could have or would have tried to have a Jackie Robinson type of situation to break the color barrier in St. Louis? You know, I think he, I think he would have, uh, of course that's, that's ultimately speculation, but I think mm-hmm. one of the interesting things when you look back at the history of the Cardinals is there was a time in the 1930s when Sam Braden, who owned the Cardinals from or ran the Cardinals as the president from 1920 to 1947 was the majority owner starting in the early 1920s. After the 1934 World Series, he gave serious consideration to selling the team to an oil man out of Oklahoma by the name of Lou Wentz. And uh, Ricky seemed to be pushing for that sale and seemed to be very comfortable with Wentz. And one of the rumors at the time was that Braden was not going to get out of baseball, but Braden, who was a native New Yorker, wanted to go back to New York. And the the speculation was that he wanted to go buy the Brooklyn Dodgers. So one of the things I mentioned in the book is, you know, what if when we talk about these alternative histories of the Cardinals, what if it was Braden who had left to go to Brooklyn and Ricky had stayed behind in St. Louis? I think that would have been an interesting parallel to what happened. But absolutely, I think he would have. I think they would have been forced uh, after World War II. There was a great push to do that. And if you look at uh, a, a Ricky colleague, a Ricky De- devotee and Bill DeWitt Sr., who was running the St. Louis Browns in the 1940s, the St. Louis Browns were the third team in baseball to have a black player after the uh, Dodgers and the Cleveland Indians. So absolutely, uh, Ricky would have looked at that here in St. Louis. That would have been interesting. And it would have been maybe even more difficult just coming from such a, well, at the time, the most Southern town that you could have. Um, The attitudes were probably a little bit different. I mean, not that they were great in New York, obviously, but they were, you know, somewhat different. So that would have been an, an interesting way of looking at this yeah the Um, other other thing about that is is when ricky left i mean really he had the cardinals on in this incredible role i mean the minor league system by the late 1930s really stretched from coast to coast they had more than 30 minor league teams uh 30 minor league teams under their operation they owned about half of those outright uh they just had this incredible pipeline of talent coming to st louis i mean he leaves his last year in St. Louis is 1942. That club wins 106 games, which is still to this day a franchise record. I mean, that team had uh, Musial and Slaughter and Terry Moore. They were loaded throughout the 40s. Even after Ricky left, of course, they went on to uh, win a pennant in 43, win a World Series in 44, then won another World Series in 46. And, of course, uh, Ricky takes hold there in Brooklyn. He starts developing the Brooklyn farm system in addition to signing Jackie Robinson and, and the, the, uh, the switch flips in 1947. Uh, if you look from 26 to 46, over that 21-year period, the Cardinals win nine pennants and, and go to the world or win six World Series titles. Over the next two decades, it's the Brooklyn Dodgers, the, the Dodgers, well, first in Brooklyn, then in Los Angeles, they become the most dominant franchise in the National League. Did Ricky move make the move? I can't remember. From from New York to uh, no, from New York he, to California, he did not. No, his last year with the Dodgers was 1950. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, there yeah. was a there was a clash between him and Walter O'Malley, and, and O'Malley mm-hmm. wanted him out. And uh, yeah, basically right. his, con- his contract was up, and he he uh, uh, O'Malley wasn't going to renew his contract, so he ended up buying him out, and he left, and uh, he ran the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, mm-hmm. for five years at the end of his career before he sort of uh, after that then got into the Continental League, tried to start a third baseball league, which mm-hmm. never got off the ground. Which in uh, but he did force baseball to expand in the early '60s. And then he comes back here in, uh, hired by Anheuser-Busch in, at, uh, in October of 1962. And he's here for 63 and 64. And uh, he gets fired after or let go after the end of the 64 season. And he dies at the end of 65. Mm. Yeah. 
Uh, it's a, a man that, that definitely lived baseball, uh, you know, because he pretty much in it all of his life. Um, what kind of things did you, I mean, because you obviously had a, I probably had a pretty good grasp of some of this stuff before you got into it. But what kind of things did you learn or surprise you in doing your research? I think one, uh, one of the biggest surprises was just how fragile I think the the history of the Cardinals is in, in terms of being in St. Louis. I mean, it was not at all a certainty that the Cardinals would remain in St. Louis. I mean, all throughout the 30s and 40s uh, with the Browns in town, there's all kinds of rumors about the Browns leaving. There are rumors about the Cardinals leaving. Braden openly in 1935, in the spring of 1935, after winning a World Series in 1934 <laughs> with the Cardinals, openly talks about moving the team to Detroit. Um, it just St. Louis could not support two baseball teams. And even in the uh, in early 1950s, at one point, uh, the Cardinals were talking about, uh, Fred Sy was talking about selling the team out and, and the team moving to Milwaukee. So mm-hmm. really until Anheuser-Busch comes along, until they get a corporate owner, a deep-pocketed corporate owner, um, the, the fate of the Cardinals was definitely unsettled here in St. Louis. Yeah, and then when the Browns took off for Baltimore, that kind of pushed them to be the only only game in town helped a lot. Helped um, exactly. We think of St. Louis then as a baseball town. Has it, do you think, has it always been that way? I mean, like you said, they were struggling at some times. That doesn't mean it wasn't a baseball town. Um, it may just not have had enough to, to handle two teams. But um, in your reading and your research, does it look like there's always been that passion for baseball around here? Yeah, there certainly was. If you can go back to the 1880s, I mean, the, the there was a dominant franchise here that wasn't in either the American League or the National League. Of course, the American League wasn't even around at the time, but mm. there was a, the St. Louis Browns, of which the Cardinals come from, were the dominant team in the American Association in the 1880s. They win four straight pennants in the 1880s and under owner Chris Vondera. And, uh, yeah, the, the fans here were, were considered very, uh, very raucous. It was very, considered a very tough place to play. Um and then the, the American League Browns come here in the early uh, 1900s. At one point, the Browns were really considered the more popular franchise of the two. In fact, the chapter you're on talking about the St. Louis Browns of 1922, that team drew over 700,000 fans that year. Cardinals only mm-hmm. drew a little more uh, a little more than a half million. So it was definitely a baseball town. It just At some point, it's, the economics of it just didn't work to support two teams. It is fascinating. Of course, you know, the Browns being an American League team. And as you said, that section we're right on now, you know, you spend a good bit right now talking about Babe Ruth, which you wouldn't, you know, you pick up this book and you're thinking you're talking about the Cardinals and you're going to start hearing about Ruth and and some of the other legends of the American League. Um, It's just a little bit different for us looking at it from this aspect to think about American League baseball in St. Louis. Yeah, that's one of the things you you talked about, things that were surprising to me. And I guess I guess I knew this, but I never really thought about uh, you think about all the great American League baseball players of the first half of the 20th century, they all played in St. Louis. I mean, you, you don't think about that, but uh, on any given day, a fan could go out to the, a sportsman park in St. Louis. They could see Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, even Joe DiMaggio, who who doesn't break in until 36, whose last year is 1951. Every year of his career, he came to St. Louis to play baseball. And I don't think we think about that in St. Louis sometimes because we it's the 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 team and the, and the Cardinals have just become so dominant. We think about nationally baseball here, but really in the first half of the 20th century, all those American league stars were coming here. Hmm. Um, what in, I mean, it's very interesting. You talk about how many minor league teams that the Cardinals had, they had 30 
minor league teams at one time. That feels like, you know, but we just went through this winter where baseball was cutting major minor league teams, uh, cutting them down. to so everybody has like four, right. um, how, you know, what gave Ricky the idea to start this? And obviously he ran into some issues. I know the commissioners at one time freed a lot of, of the minor leaguers, but, um, how did, you know, what, what kind of challenges did he have in that? Well, the impetus for that was, was money. I mean, just then as now, I mean, you know, big market teams dominated. And when you think of the early 20th century in the National League, it was the New York Giants and it was the Chicago Cubs. So you had these big market teams and they just had more, more money at their disposal because um, they had a bigger fan base to draw from. And, and Ricky and Braden just looked at the situation and they knew the only way they could really compete was to sign players before other players could. And they were able to, Braden was able to sell the old ballpark that the Cardinals played in and talk Phil Ball, who owned the Browns, into allowing the Cardinals to play at Sportsman's Park. And they got about $200,000 from the stadium and they began investing then in minor league teams. And by the early 1920s, they had a minor league team in Fort Smith, Arkansas. They had one in Houston, Texas. And they had one in Syracuse, New York. Uh, the one in Syracuse uh, ends up uh, transferring to Rochester, but that was really the basis for the Cardinals minor league system. And of that, you begin to see talent begin to flow into St. Louis. Uh, you know, some of those early players, uh, Ray Blades, Jim Bottomley, they start coming through the St. Louis minor league system. And in, in 26, it all comes together for the Cardinals in terms of their talent. And uh, Hornsby is, uh, is the great star of the National League. Babe Ruth is the great star of the American League. And of course, they meet in the World Series that year with Hornsby tagging out Ruth to, to end game seven in Yankee Stadium. Um, I think Alan and I both would like that uh, Cardinals team to still be in Fort Smith. Um, <laughs> kind of right there in the middle of the two, two of us. We yeah, we, I, if you think about it, we had the Fort Smith there. And then we had, uh, you know, Tulsa has a lot. I'm in Tulsa, uh, Mike, by the way. And it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of Cardinal history here. This was the AA and AAA home for the long time, for the longest time. Yeah, and uh, well, Little Rock was a longtime Cardinal. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Right? yeah. And yeah, it was, uh, yeah, was up. interesting history with Arkansas and, and Oklahoma. And of course, uh, uh, going way back in terms of the broadcasters, uh, Franz Locks came from Oklahoma. Uh, he was actually doing Oklahoma and Tulsa college football in the 1920s before he started at Camelwax in 1929. Wow. Well. And, and this is, I've enjoyed talking about this book, and there's so much, I mean, so much history. I mean, this is, like I said, I'm only about a third of the way through, and it's been excellent. I You do, I knew before I opened it, it was going to be good, because when you've got a quote from Mark Tomasek from Retro Symbol yeah. on the front, <laughs> I, I know this is good, because uh, Mark is, is excellent at this stuff. So definitely want to talk, we're glad we've talked about Ricky's uh, Redbirds, but Alan talked right before we came on here. He wanted to talk to you about one of your other books. Um, and I'm just going to let him, him bring that one up. Sure. Oh, it was just doing a little bit of research. You know, this is, uh, um, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma is a high school basketball hotbed. And, <laughs> uh, you know, we have Booker T. Washington here and we have a, a bunch of big names that have come through. And I, I don't know how, how renowned that is, but it is in the area. But I was very interested in the Show Me Kings. When I saw that, I was like, I would like to to know a little bit more about that book. Both of the books right now are in my Amazon cart to buy. I just, I just to let you know, I was really excited about it. And I was hoping you kind of give me a rundown because I kind of read about the, the, the nine county area and whatnot. I thought that was incredibly interesting. Yeah, I grew up in a really small town in southeast Missouri, uh, about two hours south of St. Louis. And uh, a little town called Chaffee, Missouri. And one of our competitors was a nearby high school called Scott County Central. 
And Scott County Central had a high school coach by the name of Ronnie Cookson down there. And to this day, he holds the record for the most state championships in Missouri high school basketball mm. history. And I just became interested in that story and the story of him and their teams and how he was able to uh, to develop this these dominant teams down there all those years and how he was able to dominate the state. And uh, I started interviewing him and his brother was also a high school basketball coach and sort of one thing led to another. And uh, uh, this, uh, gosh, that's been, what, almost 15, 20 years ago now that, that I did that. But yeah, just a, a great story of, of high school basketball in the local area. In fact, if you know, if you know the name Otto Porter, who played college basketball at Georgetown and then mm-hmm. uh, started at the Washington Wizards and then went to where the Chicago Bulls, I think. Uh, Otto played for Ronnie at Scott County Central. Ronnie actually retired uh, in, in the 90s. And when he retired then, he was he was the leader in terms of all-time uh, most state championships. He comes back later on and coaches Otto Porter. He actually coached Otto Porter's father, the original Otto Porter, wow. who I remember seeing playing back in the 70s. So it tells you how old I am. But uh, <laughs> and then his son came along in the early 2000s, and I think they won the state championship every year he was there as well. So just a great story of small town high school basketball. Yeah, it's great. Now, is the big high school tournament in Missouri the one, the Bass Pro Classic? Uh, you know, I, I've, I've been out of that loop for many years now. Okay. I assume that's probably a tournament down in Springfield, I guess, I'm guessing. Yeah, I have a friend in Springfield who who always texts me about the players that have been through there and whatnot. And, and, uh, and like I said, that wasn't necessarily my radar in the, you know, eighties and nineties, but I just kind of wondered about that. We have a tournament of champions in Tulsa here. That's a big deal. And I just kind of wondered if that was the big one in Missouri, if there was other ones that, uh, were at good holiday tournaments to bring. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a Christmas tournament down in Cape Girardeau and that's where Scott County Central always played. So that's, that's where I always, I saw them there every year. So that's, that's the awesome. one I talk about a lot in the book. Oh, that's perfect. I'm looking forward to it. Great. Well, like I said, Alan said they're both at Amazon. Um, are there other places that people could pick up either one of your books or any other? I don't know if that's the only two you've got or if there's more. That's the only two I have, and, and Amazon's probably the best place. I think they're available at other booksellers as well, but you know, Amazon is the probably the easiest place to get it. Okay, and I'm sure I'm sure if you want to go to your local bookstore and ask them to order it, they probably can figure that out. So, um, Mike, before we let you go, I think it's only you know only fair to ask you to to pull you out of of Cardinal history and put you into Cardinal present. It's been a very very busy week um, from the trades to uh, signings. Just overall, how what what have you thought out of out of this last week? Well, if you had asked me about uh, what I thought about the Cardinals about 10 days ago, uh, I would have said it, it's pretty depressing to think that the big offseason stories are whether or not we can re-sign a 39-year-old pitcher and a 38-year-old catcher. <laughs> but uh, things have definitely changed since then. Um, the, the addition of Arenado, um, you know, I, I, I think everyone concedes that that's, that's made a huge difference. Uh, I saw someone say the other day I think, online, I think it's someone at the Athletics said, Projected the Cardinals are probably uh, expected now to win four to five more ball games because of him at third base. So another article about now how their defense could be so incredible with Arenado at third, Goldsmith mm-hmm. at first, Bader in center field. You've got Nate Carlson now your right fielder with, with uh, Fowler out of the lineup. So it's going to be a lot more interesting team than I thought it was just a few weeks ago. Yeah, it's it's been pretty amazing to see how they've kind of crammed this all into right here as the season uh, begins. So the, the other thing you think about though is. You know, and it's nice that you have Arenado, and it's it's great. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you think about the last how many years of the Cardinals ever since Pujols has left, um, where do they get offense from? 
it, it, it comes from other places. Yeah. I mean, if you look at their system, they don't, they don't necessarily, well, I mean, people, someone like a Luke Boyd, they end up trading, but you know, their first baseman comes from somewhere else. Their third baseman comes from somewhere else. What, what are the best outfielders over the past decade? Uh, probably Matt Holliday and Carlos Beltran. Um, yeah. You know, that, uh, if you look at yeah. both Pujols in terms of the hitters they have, or they've developed, maybe I, Carpenter's had some good years. Molina's had some good years, but a lot of the times the Cardinals have to go outside the organization for offensive talent. Yeah, I mean, it feels like they've tried to shift that focus, and you know, Dylan Carlson may be the first to to be reflective of that. But they have a they have a feel for pitching and trying to figure yeah. out the offensive thing. Well, if you have a feel for pitching, you can always trade for offense. So I guess that's there's something there. So, yeah, let's hope. Yeah, hopefully so. <laughs> Mike, thanks for joining us. Now, where again exactly? Where can people find uh, you on Twitter? And is there a website? Uh, yeah, the website, uh, Twitter, and uh, I got a Facebook page. All uh, Ricky's Redbirds, Ricky'sRedbirds.com, Ricky's Redbirds on Twitter, and uh, yeah, you can find me there. Or uh, like I said, the books are available. Uh, Show me Kings and Mr. Ricky's Redbirds, baseball, beer, scandals, and celebrations in St. Louis, both available to Amazon. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. I look forward to, to finishing working through this. And this is a, folks, this is not just a, you know, like I said, it's a deep, thick, um, thick book. So you, you know, you can't just sit down and read it in one, in one sitting. It's, a, it's detailed and it's, and it's really, really good. So, uh, Mike, thanks for joining us and we'll, maybe we'll do it again sometime. All right. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Thanks to Mike for coming on and talking about his book. Uh, it's like I said, it's a, it's a good book. It's about, looks like it's about 500 pages. It's small print. I will warn you. Um, I was telling Alan here a while ago that I had to actually wait till I got new glasses before I could read it because I'm old. Um, but um, if you want to know about St. Louis history, I mean, really it, it's talking, I've, I've read through a part. It's talking about some of the gamblers that were in St. Louis that were tied to the Black Sox scandal. So, I mean, like I said, it's not just these two teams that were in St. Louis. I mean, it's baseball as it, as it intersected with St. Louis. It's a really good book. Um, so check it out. But like I say, this has been a week. Um, Monday saw the, uh, was it Monday? Alan Tuesday. I guess it's Tuesday when they had the official announcement and press conference with, uh, Nolan Arnauto. Yep. Um, Monday. Yeah. 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 yeah, Cause it was a complicated thing. We've had the official departure of Colton Wong, who obviously had been a free agent for all this time, but finally signed with the Brewers for uh, two years, uh, with an option for third. And then last night, Dexter Fowler traded to, the Angels, kind of out of the blue, Cardinals paying almost all of the salary just to um, have a chance to play some outfielders. Let's work it backwards. Let's talk about the stuff that's just happened, and that is the Dexter Fowler stuff. Um, when I saw that come through, it really kind of caught me off guard. I, you know, it makes some sense, but I there had been no talk about anything like that at all. And when we knew that Mo had said earlier in the week that they may not be done, I don't think we any of us really expected this to be the kind of thing they were doing. No, absolutely not. Not for me. It uh, this reminds me of some of the uh, somewhat of the Randall Grichik trade 
you know, some years Ooh. back to Toronto where you thought, hey, he's going to fit in and be a good fourth outfielder. This is going to be a pretty good team. And, you know, it's uh, this is going to be a pretty good fit. And next thing you know, he's traded and it kind of came out of nowhere. You're just like, well, you felt like they would get some at-bats there. I mean, I had kind of resigned myself, and that's for lack of a better word, of, of the possibility that we may see Fowler leading off a little bit this year. You know, that uh, they're going to do a hybrid uh, – um, you know, kind of a hybrid role between he and Bader, you know, and, uh, and kind of fit in that way. But, but no, when, when the trade went down, I I thought, you know, as much no trade protection as he has, I felt like this was probably a player driven situation. And I don't think that he strong armed them. And I think there was mutual respect between the parties, be it Fowler and the organization that they, they talked and, and said, Hey, if there's a better fit somewhere, would you, would you, could you find it? And, you know, that's close to his home and close to, you know, spring trainings, close to Vegas. And, and it's a fit, but yeah, it, it was surprising to be honest with you. Cardinals have had a little bit of a, I don't want to say a pipeline, but it feels like there's a lot of Cardinals that wind up being angels at some point in time, you know, whether it's by trade like this or signings or whatever the case may be. Um, ever since uh, Pujols went that way, um, you know, uh, it's, just feels like there's been some. I'd have to look them up and see, but it feels like there's been a number. Of, you know, Fernando Salas was out there, um, a few others. I think that I, I can't come off the top of my head, so maybe I'm sure, just making sure. this up. But, but no. um, you know, feels like some people that have, have played in St. Louis that have made their way out there. Um, yeah, I think that I think you're right. I think that they talked to. I mean, the whole Dexter Fowler time in St. Louis has been highlighted by the fact that um, there's been a very, the front office has been very fond of Dexter Fowler, I guess is the best way. There's a very much of a respect factor there. I mean, we know that Mo flew out to Vegas to, Mo flew out to Vegas one time in the middle of the contract to kind of tell him, look, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to be the leadoff guy anymore. We're going to do this, but you know, to do that kind of thing face to face, which is not something that this organization does all that often. Um, so I do think that they probably sat down and said, look, you know, we're probably going to, we want to see what these three guys can do or four guys. Um, and there's not going to be a lot of time for you. Um, you know, and, and I understand Dexter wanting to move on. You think maybe if his time in St. Louis had been a little bit better and we can maybe get into that in a minute, I don't know exactly what he feels of St. Louis. I know he has some fondness for it. He, at least he said so in his Instagram but it's not necessarily been all sunshine and roses for him here either. But it'd been a better situation. Maybe he wants to, maybe he says, Hey, look, this team looks like it's got a chance. I'm going to, you know, I'd rather be on the bench for a team that's winning than a, you know, starting on a team that's not, but I don't know that he had that kind of, that kind of tie to St. Louis. And so he might as well go ahead and like you said, go play closer to home, go play at a team that, I assume we'll be playing him more often. Um, when you look at the fact that he's a free agent at the end of the year, he needs to play to, if he wants another contract. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think this was a mutual kind of thing. And I think that's part of why you saw the Cardinals pay all that salary. It was to try to get him in the right spot. I'm, I'm not saying that there were a whole lot of other offers, but I think they could have easily, they could have easily let this go for another week or two. Right. They could have waited till they got to spring training and, and let Dexter hit some and maybe drop, bring up his market a little bit. But 
you know, they found a spot that worked for him and he does have a no. No, he does. He not have a no trade. I don't remember he did. talking. To he did. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't, um, I didn't remember the discussions today talking about that. Um, it just, it was a situation that works for both sides and we'll go. I do wonder, and we talked about this, you know, there's a lot of different outfielders now on this roster. We've talked about that for, for years. Most of them have options. In fact, if, if the roster resource on Fangraphs is right, every outfielder you would expect to be on this team has options, except for Justin Williams, mm-hmm. who will have no options. I wonder if that played a little factor in that is that they don't really want to cut him. Um, and so if they're going to give him any playing time, there really just wasn't going to be that kind of time for Dexter Fowler. No, I'm sure that had a big part of it. I mean, that uh, they, they seem very high on, uh, on Williams and Thomas still, you know, I've heard the names brought up several times, you know, in the off season conversations and uh, they, they're intrigued by his power. Uh, they're, uh, and I, you know, it it makes sense that if you're going to give the guys a shot, give them a legit shot, you know. And and it's and I, I it's tough to say that. In and it sounds like it's a, a it's a knock at Fowler, which I don't intend it to be. But mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody was going to get a fair shot as as far as as long as Fowler was there, you know, because Carlson there intending to play every day, and right. then you start mixing everything else. Well, if you start getting that name down that list of names, Williams doesn't come up very quick, very quickly. And you know, how much, how much could he help you? I mean, cause he can't go down, you know, he's going to mm-hmm. have to pass through waivers and you never know what that means at this, you know, in, in such a convoluted year. So I'm sure that played a big part. I think that they legitimately want to give these guys an extended chance and they're going to throw out 2020 and say, this is, this is the chance that you've got. I feel like you have a little bit of runway on that now with Arenado because the lineup isn't the pressure isn't on these guys to perform like it was, you know, last Thursday. You yeah, know, basically. Yeah. So, so I'm sure it did. I think they have plans. I think they have actually some really high hopes for Williams and Thomas, and uh, I think this probably says a lot toward that. I just again, we've had this discussion before. I've written it a few times. I still. I think about how crazy last year was and how many people made appearances. And yet Justin Williams didn't get, but a couple of bats that last, what the last week of the year, he didn't come up at all until the very end of the season. It, granted COVID hit the pitching staff much harder than it did the, uh, the hitters, but it's still, you know, I mean, Dylan Carlson even went down for a while. I just a little bit surprised that in all that kind of stuff, if they were high on Justin Williams, that he didn't make an appearance and he didn't make an appearance in 19 either. I mean, you know, he has, you know, when, when did they get him? It was trading deadline of 18 when they traded fam. Right. Um, you know, they've had him for quite some time. He's been on the 40 man roster the whole entire time. And they've never been able to find a time to get into the major leagues until the very end of a pandemic season. I, I don't know if, if they're still high on him, I'm not really sure why he hasn't had a time before, you know, in the big leagues before that. But if they're not high on him, again, you don't try to Dexter Fowler necessarily. You just, you know, put him on waivers or something. So I don't know. It, it, Justin Williams really kind of baffles me a little bit, at least in the usage of him. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I, I 19 is probably 
I don't know. I don't know a reason. It's mm-hmm. one of those to where 2020, you, you really just don't know what went on. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Since there yeah. was nowhere else to play and whatnot. So it's just tough to speak on that. I mean, it's one of those where I'm going to try my best just to kind of discount everything that happened and just to kind of move forward as far as the minor league guys are concerned. Because, I mean, I think that our opinion of, you know, we had a couple of weeks where we were really tough on Lane Thomas and to come mm-hmm. and find out that he was probably having a really tough time just functioning, much less playing. So, you know, I don't know. You've got a good point. Uh, it's it, it. You felt like there would have been enough opportunities in that 19 season when they were begging for offense. I don't know what his minor league numbers were, but, you know, and, at the expense of, you know, I, th- there's probably several motivating factors for the Fowler situation, Fowler being one of them. But, you know, Rosarena didn't really get a chance and, and Williams didn't get a chance at all. So, yeah, you just you, I don't know what the inside thinking on that on that is. Yeah, I don't. And of course, Williams started 19 with a broken hand after he passed his uh, yeah, TV. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. That, that may you know. be, play a bigger part in that. Yeah, you know, between the heel. Yeah, we've seen that happen, you know, mm-hmm. to where, you know, one of the guys that I, that in recent memory that had some kind of disciplinary activity like that that made it through clean that you don't hear much about is Hicks. And that was, you know, him showing up late that day and immediately yeah. getting sent down to minor league camp. And most of the time in the Cardinals organization, that costs a young player. And I felt like that. I mean, I still think it hangs over Reyes's head a little bit. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I kind of forgotten about that. Yeah. I mean, and you know, yeah, it just, yeah, but he had to heal up from that anyway. And then, um, and he doesn't you know, try to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. That's also true. Um, and for Reyes, at least he's gotten quite a few chances as well. I mean, you're right. It may still affect a little bit, but, Maybe not as much as somebody that's not yeah. as talented as he is. I mean, you know, um, talent does tend to win out. But um, I don't know. I So are, are we kind of thinking then it's going to be Carlson, Bader, uh, O'Neill? Do we still think there's some sort of platoon options for Bader? Do we, you know, how long of a leash are they going to give, especially Bader and O'Neill? I figure Carlson's good. But, you know, are they going to want to force Lane Thomas? Can Lane Thomas win a spot in the rotation, in the, you know, starting lineup with a strong spring? What, do you, what are you thinking about this? Outfield I, I, I think so. I, if you, I think if you truth serum the Cardinals right now, you're probably going to go with a starting outfield of O'Neill, Bader, and Carlson. Carlson's going to play every day. Mm-hmm. And, and possibly you're probably going to get a month or so, depending on how the minor leagues go, of – of a shot for Williams to play a little bit, depending, let's just say they all have an equal spring. No one stands out, which hardly ever happens. Right. That's probably what would ha- what would need to go down. I think Thomas, if he doesn't start in St. Louis, he's going to be up quickly and he'll probably be that platoon partner. And it, it, like, it would not surprise me if for a long period of the season, and I'm, I'm not a guy that's, that's really down on Bader, but I, I think that the upside on Thomas is high. And yeah. I think that there could be a situation where if O'Neill hits, you can see a lot of O'Neill, Thomas, and Carlson at that point. Uh, but I think those are the five that will be a factor. I think, you know, I kind of forget about Austin Dean a little bit. And mm-hmm. uh, he still has options and is going to be a depth piece. But if he can hit, I mean, he'll be there. Um, I, this The whole dynamic of everything changes with, with Arenado. I feel like this is now this is the opportunity that you have that you can actually give them an extended look where you couldn't last year 
and it's for pandemic reasons and for you know your lineup couldn't survive by giving mm-hmm. them a good look. Well, this year, you know, on paper you can, and you can get a good look. And they've pivoted themselves now to where if they run this outfield to start, if they don't go find a veteran that can play infield and the outfield, you know, to to leave on their bench because there, there's so many guys that are still available out there right now. You can look at it maybe if a Matt Carpenter hits, then you know you've actually got an Edmund that could play outfield. All those things kind of lead to me, lead me to think that they're going to give all this an in, in opportunity. And if in worst case scenario they go get somebody at the deadline, which they haven't done in, in recent years, I think that uh, there's blood in the water right now, and I think they feel like they can go out and win. So, long answer, I think that the the starting outfield that we'll see on opening day is in house right now. Yeah, I, I think that's. That's fair, and I do think that you're right that they'll they're trying to see what they've got to make it to the because they feel like pretty confident, and I think they should that they're at least going to be in contention when it comes to the trading deadline because mm-hmm. you know you you can look at a lot of the projections and all these different things, and maybe the Cardinals are still right there with the the Brewers and you know the Cubs, the Reds are a little behind them. Um, it feels like there's a little bit more of a gap there than than that, but. Maybe not. Um, no matter though, it's it, at, at worst it's a close division, and yeah, who knows who's available at the deadline. Um, you know, I also wonder, uh, you know, if we're finally going to see some of these guys out of the organization. You know, at the if they don't hit, I mean, we've <laughs> it feels like we've been talking about these guys got to get some play, and these guys got to hit for like what three years now. Um, it. it does kind of finally feel like we've hit that wall where they have to do something. Otherwise these guys are going to be, I mean, I know they've got options, but it feels like if, if Bader struggles again or Tyler O'Neill struggles again, they're not, they may be in Memphis by, you know, May or June and we might not see them again and they get waived at the end of the year. I mean, that's the kind of, it kind of feels like it's a make or break year for them. Finally, even though it should have been by now. Yeah, I, I think that you could see, and even reading some of the reporting that's out there, uh, that some people are thinking, well, I feel like this may have been a long enough look for some of these guys. I feel like I feel you, you hear that with O'Neill and a ton mm. that, uh, well, it's never played, and, you know, his numbers have, seemed to have seemingly gone down every year. But, uh, but yeah, the, I, I would think that this is probably their extended tryout, and by that, probably till around July. And we'll kind of go from there. And I mean, I, I kind of like the idea of letting them play without the pressure of of half of needing to produce. You know, not just a, I mean, the lineup it was pivotal. And and last year and the year before back, basically, it was we're relying on you to do this, and that that's got to be tough. Um, so I I I'm all for the lineup that it ha- that that we'll see right now. Just at least we'll have some answers and maybe a little bit of clarity. And hopefully they'll get that leash. I know that a couple, you know, and we'll get to Colton Walker in a minute, but, you know, in his career, there were times where he got, you know, bumped to Memphis because nobody else was hitting. If for some reason Arenado starts off slow um, and things just aren't clicking overall, it could be a guy like Bader or O'Neill gets bumped for Thomas or Justin Williams a lot faster just because this isn't going the way we thought it was going to go. Yeah. How much, how much, what did 2020 buy those guys? 
you know, in anybody that's that's questionable, you think, or is it one I of think, those that just yeah. thrown out the window? Well, I mean, I think yeah, I think you toss, especially for Thomas, and I don't think any of them did it enough to make it, you know, have any kind of positive side of twenty twenty. Yeah. I mean, Harrison Bader had a great last day. They kind of bumped some of his numbers up because small sample size, but. I don't, I think that all of them would rather not. And I think a lot of them have gotten credit. I don't want to say credit, but if 2020 had been a normal year, I don't think all those guys are still here this year um, because I think they would have figured out what they had in those outfielders more and would have been doing something different, whether it's waving people, trading people, or, you know, you know, because it may have been that, hey, maybe Bader with a full year claims center field completely, and then you can get rid of a Tyler O'Neill or a Lane Thomas because yeah. you know what you have. Right now, there's just a whole bunch of maybe. We don't know. We've got to play them. And I think, yeah, I think our normal 2020, we would have a we would have had some answers. But with the way it was, it was just like, okay, 2019, maybe you're learning from Jeff Albert. 2020 is a mess, you know we kind of start from scratch on 2021 and, and see what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny just to see how, how, <laughs> how easy it is to dismiss 2020 when you have an, an Arenado in the lineup. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that helps, but it's really, it would have been difficult. Sure. And sure. I mean, no matter. And, and like you said, I mean, we, we were kind of rough on uh, Lane Thomas, especially with those fielding miscues. Yeah. And, yeah mental errors that we saw late in the year. But when you talk about how, you know, even by the end of the season, he was still not really recovered from the COVID um, issues that he had had, you know, to the point, I assume he is healthy now. I haven't, I'm sure when we get to spring training and some reports and some stories, which again is going to be interesting to see how they do spring training reporting, much less actual playing. Um, we'll, We'll probably see if he's, fairly recovered as he should be but you know um i just think that you know with small sample sizes with the craziness that you had with all the double headers with the games that were mm-hmm. canceled i don't see how you i mean if somebody is able to succeed in those situations i think maybe you give them a little bit of credit just because they were able to succeed in i mean like paul goldschmidt had a great year um which is in line with paul goldschmidt um, but we don't say, well, that's small sample size for him. One, because he's done it before, but two, because, you know, it was a good year. I mean, you know, that's in, in all those situations, if you're able to do your, even your normal stuff in all that kind of craziness, you should get some credit for that. Um, the problem was there just wasn't a whole lot of people that would get that credit. A lot of people would rather wipe that out because they did not have a good year at all. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I mean yeah. So what a what a weird time that we're in. Hopefully, yes, that, it is. So hopefully, that's the one benefit of of breaking camp when we're supposed to instead of the month delay. It kind of seems more normal. Yeah, that's possible. If you're talking about weird things, though, what we saw today was kind of weird in the fact that we saw Colton Wong in a Brewers cap. Um, Colton doing his Zoom interviews with the Milwaukee media and, and others. Um, as he was announced as the new second baseman of the Brewers. You know, again, I think a lot of us daydreamed a little bit about Colton Wall coming back after Arenado um, because, you know, that, that infant would have been just amazing. Um, but we knew Colton was gone. 
uh, right? I mean, that's it. Just it was a little bit surprising to me, even hearing him today say that the Cardinals really just never engage with him. That they would call and say hi, basically, but they never really in you know, hey, what would it take? Or hey, are you interested? Or hey, you've been out there a while. Would you take X amount? They just kind of said, hey, how you doing? Um, that surprised me a little bit. Just, I mean, maybe they just didn't feel like they could afford him, but you know, to, to a guy like that would have fit so well on this team. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it's, it's funny. It never saw, it never seemed like there was a whole lot of love one way or the other throughout the process. You know, there was a mm-hmm. little bit of back and forth right after they had made the decision that they weren't going to pick up the option and, and all that. But, uh, it was just kind of a name that we kind of kept them on the periphery and didn't really, follow up too much it's uh it, it i wonder how much of the i wonder how much of the of the colorado conversation was just so engrossing that they really didn't rally back other than the you know the check-in phone calls with anybody um you know i i don't know it seems like it's gone on you know quite a while but it, it it's funny i it's i i don't know i just i didn't see it happening after the original if they didn't work something out for a cheaper deal right away i didn't yeah. think that it was probably going to happen just because kind of falls into that you know the business 101 you have a cheaper option that the fallback may not be as much i you feel like you probably go with that you know mo's on uh, was on KMOX and he made the comment he said we had one lever to pull to to to, to make sure that we would save money and that was it you know, and it's, yeah. that says it all, I feel like. And it's, and it kind of stinks because, because you're right. You're just like, you know, we wouldn't be worrying about the outfield that much if we had an infield like that. And the infield's going to be good anyway, but that would have been pretty spectacular. So I can't say, st- I, I hate it because I loved Wong and he's one of those that, you know, you, we had seen from, you know, the first round draft pick to, to making his way up and, you know, I had a big influence here. And Tulsa just coming through is on a that team was really really good that he played mm-hmm. for with with Suarez and those guys and uh, and Rosenthal and all them it was it was loaded and uh, you know it, it kind of stinks to see him play somewhere else especially in the Central but you know that's probably a pretty good fit for him because he always hit there hit well yeah. in that ballpark yeah I do wonder I mean we know that those discussions with Colorado went on for months. <sighs> Again, look, we have with with Nolan in the fold. I got to thinking about it. Even if you brought Colton back, I don't know how that fits. You know, you're already having going to have trouble with Matt Carpenter. Yeah, figuring out a place for sure. him. If if Wong comes back, then Edmund's going to have to play a lot of outfield because he's not. I mean, those you know, play some shortstop, but you know, most of those guys are going to play every day. As we talk a little bit here in a little bit it may have been that they kept their hand in just in case the things with the Rockies fell apart, but they knew if they got Arenado, then, then there just wasn't going to be room for everybody. And, you know, they were able to get somebody to take Dexter Fowler. I don't think they'll be able to do that with Matt Carpenter. And I mean, there's only, after, you only get 26 men after a while, there's just yeah. not spots for everybody. Sure. I mean, that's, uh, you know, it, it kind of, it, it would have been a log jam. I mean, it's, it's funny. The, uh, you know, the takeaways from the press conference of when, uh, you know, maybe a, another possible move that, that Mo could make. And, and one was to add a pitcher. One was to add some middle infield depth. And one was to add, uh, you know, a left-handed bench bat. And I'm thinking, well, wouldn't that naturally be Carpenter at this point? 
You know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. I mean, you bring in another player like that and you think, well, they almost have to make a move because that's going to be a pretty deep bench and not in a good way, you know, of guys that, that don't get to play. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it kind of kind of been the uh, um, square peg round hole type situation in that mm-hmm. infield. Yeah, I mean, it would have been, like I said, it would have been great to see. And I always been a big fan of Colton Wong, so I always wanted him back. But, again, if you had to trade him for Arenado, then I think you do that. Yeah, uh, just yeah. Because, you know, that bat's better. Um, to some degree, I, I hate that he went to the Central because we, you know he's going to burn the Cardinals oh, three or three times this year. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, it's nice because we actually get to see him more often, you know? I mean, Albert went out to Anaheim and we never saw him for like 10 years, you know? Yeah. Uh, it'd be better than seeing somebody, you know, I think he would have probably stayed in the National League, not necessarily, but, you know, seeing him six times a year or maybe if you go to the American League, maybe you're seeing him three times every three years. I mean, could have gone, if he had gone to the right team, Colton Wong could have, you know, gone to that team and never come to St. Louis, you know? Um, at least this way, you know, you do get to see him. Uh, the fans will get to say cheer for him just about every time he comes up because it's Cardinal fans. He'll probably still get to, you know, two years from now, still get a, a nice hand. He won't be standing ovations, but uh, unless he turns into Aramis Ramirez and then people may boo him. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's, I, it feels like a good situation. It wasn't the Cubs, so that's good. I think that's the the big thing that we all worry about is if somebody like that goes to Chicago. Um, we'll miss him, but uh, it's it's really hard to say in light of everything that they made the wrong move. We wouldn't have said that a week ago, um, but in light of everything else, it's I I don't think the front office messed up here. I know, no, and that's uh, the as Cardinals fans, the the trade off was pretty darn good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that takes us back to, you know, Tuesday when we did get the first, not only did we get the press conference, Arenado, um, at the same time, the Rockies are having their press conference, which was a little different. Um, not quite as upbeat and chipper. Arenado's done a lot of radio in St. Louis. He's done a lot of things. It's, it's hard to know, hard to tell. I mean, because you, it's, you know, what do you expect him to do? But he genuinely does look excited to be in St. Louis. Oh yeah. Uh, weight lifted off his chest. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. uh, it's crazy. The, the, even the radio interviews and everything sounds upbeat, but, the, but sometimes there's a comfort level without a doubt that, that I was impressed with the, uh, um, you know, take that with a grain of salt, you know, a lot of times, but I, I genuinely thought how oh, he's pretty comfortable in his surroundings here. And, uh, and I think that's a good sign. Um, it it was probably pretty tedious in Colorado. Just how you I I thought that the immediate turn and making it out. Now listen, I I honestly do think that Arenado came in and said, "Hey, this is probably where I want to go." You know yeah. what I mean? And and made a beeline to make that happen. I don't think that that press conference that I read out of Colorado when I read the notes about it makes me change my mind about that. But mm-hmm. I also, you don't know many organizations that throw somebody under the bus in that situation either. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it was, it was an ugly situation. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have friend, I have a really good friend who's a, who's a Rockies fan, and and he's been going on for a couple, you know, since Thursday night, and he knew that that, that Arnold was going to get traded, and that uh, you know the doll situation burned everybody up, and it was it's an ugly situation there. Uh, be kind of thankful for what we have. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it really did show what good ownership and good connection. I mean, yeah, they just. I don't know. They did not. It is up to them. I mean, that's, that's a situation we don't have to worry about as much. Um, I do think it's, it seems unlikely that Trevor story is going to come back there. And when he leaves, what does that mean for the Rockies? Boy, I don't, I don't know. I'm glad I'm in this regard, not a Rockies fan. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think that right now, and again, it's nice that he says that he's not going to plan to use the opt outs. We'll see if, if that happens. I think that's probably true. I think right now he does not plan to use those. And I think that the Cardinals, I mean, look, I think no matter what, we expect the Cardinals to be a winning team this year, right? We expect the Cardinals to be a winning team next year. We also expect the Cardinals to, even if they're not wild spenders, do enough to be competitive. Even if you want to argue that they don't do enough or they haven't done enough over the last couple of years to put them over the top, they've been competitive. They've been in the playoffs the last two years. There's, it seems like they'll probably be back again this year with given how the Central is. If winning is what's important to <coughs> excuse me, Nolan Arenado, um, he's going to win. He's going to he's going to play more. I think he's got what they say he has. Does he have? I don't know. He's only got a handful of postseason games. He could easily surpass that this year with the Cardinals. Um, maybe definitely in two years, if things go well. I don't see any reason because I don't feel like he's the guy. I don't think he left Colorado. He didn't leave Colorado because he wanted more money. He didn't, you know, leave Colorado for anything more the fact that he. One, I mean, one bad relationship, but two wanted to win, and that was the the, the kicker, right? I mean, they, you know, he thought they were going to add around him, and they bought like one pitcher for two million dollars or something over the last two years. I mean, they haven't done anything out there the to help that team, um, and I think that if nothing else, the Cardinals usually do that. So I, I think he's going to be happy here, and he's they're going to win, and I don't think he's going to use those opt outs. Um, you know, we'll we'll see if that what happens when the when it gets down to it, but I just I just don't see that happening. Yeah, I mean, famous last words at this point. But <laughs> anybody use the opt out? You know, and it, it's it's gonna be I don't know I I feel like it's a little far fetched now, and I this may be egg in my face. You know, ultimately, but I ultimately I'm not too concerned about those. And it's funny back to the Rockies. I mean. Why on earth would Trevor Story stay? Oh, no reason. You know, Absolutely. there's just not. I mean, they talk about redirecting and paying him. I'm just like, why would you do that? I mean, I, mean, I, I guess it, I guess if it's just the money. I mean, if they were yeah. able to go and give him a similar type contract, but you know, they're talking about they don't have that kind of money. Yeah, yeah, uh, and have shown to, they've lied to. It's from yeah. words, but have shown that you know Nolan's there, and they don't improve around him or yep. sign terrible bullpen pieces, in which they did, which they had done. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. Just it's not very convincing. Let's say that. Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like that's an organization that needs some sort of 
culture change or at least some new blood in there. Because even if they're trying, when they're trying, I mean, we've seen that they've spent some money over the last half decade or so, but except for the contract to no one, um, not very well. I mean, they spent a lot of money and it hadn't done anything. You yeah. talked about the relievers that they spent you know, the idea of building a, a really awesome bullpen didn't happen. Um, you know, they spent a lot of money on people like Ian Desmond. That wasn't, you know, a good idea. They let DJ and Mayhew go. So they need to figure out some way to value players better over there. And then maybe they can build something, but um, it does. It also doesn't feel like an organization that's that interested in self um, inspection. Um, given that, I think probably at least twenty five other teams, because uh, there are a few outliers that are kind of crazy, would have fired their GM well before it got to this point. <laughs> yeah, the yeah, that's. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, that's what I thought was kind of funny about that uh, about their press conferences, where the owner kind of took it and, and everything. I'm like, you know, he went. GMs have been fired for much less than going public on a player. You know, that's oh, yeah, that yeah. is not a good look. No, and again, as you and I talked about, uh, British made the mistake of alienating. Yeah. the press um by saying they couldn't do his job and they've never led and blah 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 and really coming condescending to the you know the media which is all well and good to some point cases and i will say at times that the media needs to be maybe uh brought off the pedestal they put themselves on but um you can't do that and not have anything to show for it uh you know no division titles um you know running off you know, what could have been your a Hall of Famer uh, in your cap. Uh, those, you know, when you do that, the press is going to tear you up. And we saw that. We saw lots of columns that I think they would have been critical of the Rockies, no matter. But there was almost a personal joy out of that, or, of being able to just rip on, on British because <laughs> of what he said. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it, there was. I felt like there was. It was target practice. You know, mm-hmm. the, the Twitter was was really rough, and some of the stories that came out the next day were 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 uh, they're pretty tough. Yeah. Now the Cardinals. Again, we 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 hear more. I mean, back when we were doing the show last week, we didn't really understand all the details of this trade. We found out who went. It was Austin Gomber, um, and four others: Tony Loki, Jake Summers. Um, Aleros Montero and what's, who's the one I'm missing? I don't remember. Maybe that, is that it? I'm missing somebody, I think. Yeah, I'm, go ahead. I'm, I'm also, yeah, look it up. See, um, anyway, nobody, the fact that I'm missing somebody is and not, it yeah. just shows you that they're not the big names. We also find out that the Cardinals are getting, getting, $51 million from the Rockies. Um, I don't, boy, I don't know of a trade. I can't even think of a trade like this, right? That, okay, usually it's, you know, okay, the team that's getting the player might get some money because they're getting really good prospects out of it. The Cardinals gave up one major league player, nobody in their top five. One, I think Matero was the only one in their top 10. Oh, Mateo Gill was the other one. Yes. Yeah, that's, um, that's who it was. Um, 
But, you know, I think Montero was the only one in their top five or top 10. And then they get 15 million dollars from the Rockies this year. And Nolan Arenado defers the other 20. So they get a free year of Arenado there. If he sticks around, that extra year that they put on is paid for by the Rockies. I can't, I don't know who came up with these ideas, but it's one amazing that the Cardinals would come up with them Two that they had the guts to ask for it. And three that they actually got it. Yeah. It's crazy. I've always wondered how those conversations went Yeah, um, because it's, you kind of wonder when that other shoe is going to drop. You mm. know, honestly, there's a feeling of that to me to where you're thinking, okay, what, what's the catch on this? And, how did they pull that over? You know, and it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, I heard some, I, I probably should have researched a little bit more and uh, it, it jotted down some notes. I heard on, on MLB network this week, some of the, the conversation in defense of the, the Rockies, which was, which was decent, but it still wasn't convincing that it wasn't a bad mood, a bad move. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, it, it's crazy. I always wonder how that started and, and where, where they get, how it started and how it finished and what happened in the middle. Yeah. I mean, you look at places like fan graphs and the places that can do the math on these things, which is well beyond me. And there was this idea that it was a little bit more reasonable um, because of what the contract was, how you value this, you know, it was an underwater value contract that the Cardinals needed to get the 50 million to make it even uh, just because that's how much less value Arenado's contract had. But boy, when you take it out of that context, it's just, and again, you know, there was a lot of these trades like Mookie Betts, um, you know, went from front to Boston and the Dodgers gave up at least a couple of good prospects there. I mean, we'll see how they turn out and everything, but they were fairly highly rated. Yeah. I mean, uh, to the fact that they were able to to make this trade with the Rockies and not give up Nolan Gorman, not give up Matthew Libertor or Zach Thompson, which I didn't expect them to give up their pitching, but if you had told me they would make this deal, I would have told you they're giving up Gorman just because you know he's close enough to the major leagues and he's a third baseman, and yeah. they, and maybe they were willing to, but they didn't have to. Sure, the apples to apples argument on that. I thought that was the exact same thing. I was like, okay. Well, you're going to say goodbye to Gorman in this situation, and even when we heard that it was it was fairly close, I thought there was going to be some fairly big names go, but none of none of, just shy of the big league roster. I thought yeah. everybody was probably in question at that point to not give any of those. And I mean, I'm even high on Montero, but I'm more than willing to make that yeah, it, he and Gomber deal, who I both really really like, mm-hmm. to make that deal to get a superstar. It just it's it's bizarre. I mean, the, the whole situation is really strange. Yeah. And you're right. I don't know how they, you know, I'm sure they have some idea of, okay, this is where, this is what our payroll number has to be. We need this. We need that. This is what we're said the valuation is. They say, this is what we think this valuation is. I, I don't know. But it, it was, a you know, like I said, it was a complex trade. It was Friday night, right as we're finishing the show last week, or right in the middle of the show, um, that we hear that it's coming down. It's actually done, but it's Monday night before it's finalized, just because it took that much time to work out the mechanics of it. It's possibly the longest time I've seen of a trade having to work out. I mean, we hear rumors and then you say, but from 
hey, it's a final to now we can, you know, put it in the books. That's a long gap uh, to have a whole weekend like that. Yeah, that's I. I'm sure that was probably in the hands of the attorneys for the longest yeah. time, just to to see what kind of red tape they could cut through to make to make it happen. But uh, yeah. yeah, I'm sure there were several iterations, and and uh, they would all be interesting. But yeah, there was it. It, it was never really in doubt because I just don't feel like the Cardinals do that. You know, if it's if it's if it leaks now, of course they didn't say anything, but they didn't really deny anything either, and. Uh, I had a little bit of confidence, but yeah, like I said, fly on the wall aspect would be really interesting. in A lot of those moves, especially with that many moving parts. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So the Cardinals have revamped this whole team. Um, I, I don't want to say revamped this whole team, but they have done a lot, a lot, a lot to change momentum, a lot to change excitement levels. Like Mike was saying earlier, you know, now you actually want to go watch this team a little bit more. Um, Right now, given the Fowler's gone, given what we know, what's your lineup? I I thought about that. It was funny because I, I throughout the week I've kind of been thinking about what options I would I could see them going with. Right now, I'm going Edmund, I'm going Carlson, I'm going Goldschmidt, I'm going Arnado, and then I'm 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 going with the young. Then O'Neill, then Molina Bader is how is how I would do it. Um, you probably wouldn't have you. I probably wouldn't argue much if O'Neill forced his way into that five spot. I I want. I think DeYoung has a big year this year, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he doesn't have to feel like he's going to hit two, three, and four. Um, and I think that Carlson's going to have a big year just because he's going to have the boppers behind him. Yeah. Um, so I would personally, I'd like to see a little more on base percentage from Edmund and I would feel pretty good about it because I think that you could really produce runs with that top of the lineup. Um, you know, the alternative would be, you know, Carpenter to get on base, but he's going to have to prove a lot to get in the lineup, you know? So yeah. I would think that would probably be your opening day lineup right there. Yeah. I think that's, and like I said, as soon as Molina's back, I mean, I, yeah. I'm guessing so, and then I'm guessing it's quiet. It's because of the Caribbean series. Yeah, for, I think the Caribbean series ends tomorrow. So I would imagine that Monday they'll have a press conference and have it signed. I mean, given – I know there was some talk this week of the Blue Jays still being interested or something like that. Uh, Wayne Wright's back. Arenado's here, who's just had a, a real good relationship with Yachty. Um, I, I just don't see – if Yachty wants to play, he's coming back. He'll probably come back for a one-year deal, and we'll do this all again next year. Does um, go ahead, go ahead. I've kept a couple. No, of it's, no. Now, do you feel like any of the the uh, any of the money that they kept from the Fowler deal, even considering it's just shy of two million, mm-hmm. is possibly a second year for Molina in some way? Is there any way you can draw comparisons to that? I don't know. I mean, the second year is not going to be as tough on the payroll um, just because of how much is yeah. already coming off and the fact you'll have fans in the stands, you know, does that allow them to pay Yachty a little bit more this year to come back? Maybe. Um, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do with that. I don't know if they'll do anything with that. Maybe that's kind of the dry powder for the trading deadline. Maybe, um, maybe that's just, but you know, then there's also this talk and we can, uh, uh, though we're running long here, but that's 
the way it is when they cram every, you know, a whole off season into one week. Um, there's also the talk about the Cardinals looking for maybe a starting pitcher. Jake Odorazzi's name has come up. Um, you know, maybe that's where they can go a little bit more on a deal like that. Do you see them doing something like that? Because that would seem to be a guy struggled some last year, but he's what I think he's turning 30. Um, still feels like a guy that can probably get to maybe three years on the market. You know, is that what they want to do for a guy that would probably be just insurance right now? Well, and it, it's funny. I looked at that as well because when that when those names when that, when when Odorizzi and Paxton were brought up, I was thinking, well, and Taiwan Walker, I was thinking, yeah, I go, man, those are larger names than I expected. I thought there may be a veteran swingman in the fold somewhere, but uh, I didn't expect it to be somebody who was a you know a a, a, star, a starter with history. It's what kind of surprised me. Kind of tells me they may take it really, really easy with Michaelis um, inching back in. But I wonder now if how much the Mets are going to play into the pitching market now yeah, um, and how much that's going to affect everybody, the cascade effect, basically, to where their next move is going to determine team B's next move and so on. And then the Cardinals are going to be stuck in the middle there somewhere. Unless, unless they're just ready and they're going to strike while the strike while it's hot. I don't know. I, I would kind of be surprised if they would do that, but you know, they were, they were definitely linked and I found that interesting and exciting that they're trying. Yeah. Um, and it will be interesting to see if the Mets were just after Bauer or if they really need another pitcher, I guess that's what kind of depends, but yeah, you also look at this as, Look, if you have to give a guy another year or two, KK, I believe, is done after this year. Yes. We'll have to see if they want to bring him back. And then there's those two options for Carlos Martinez, and there's a really, really good chance they don't exercise that option for him next year. They really could need arms in the rotation yeah. next year. I don't know that Adam Wainwright's going to come back again. In theory... You know, it's Jack Flaherty and Miles Michaelis, and that's all you've got. And now, of course, you've got some arms in the organization. Daniel Ponce de Leon, maybe Johan Oviedo is ready. You start looking at Libertor and, and Thompson, and maybe you, you want, but you know, still, um, if you want free, if you want to or need to give a guy an extra year, there could be a spot for him. Yeah. There as well. So, very true. I would, I would, I would like to see it. Yeah, and I think I'd like to see that more. That, but there was a, it wasn't a real option. It was a, a tweet that I saw today, that it was just somebody that's throwing it out there that said, you know, after the Dodgers signed Trevor Bauer, they might be interested in paying somebody to take David Price. Um, if that was the case, David Price owed about thirty-two million for each the next two years. If the Dodgers were willing to pay half or more, is that somebody's interested? He's 36, so he's a little bit older. He didn't pitch last year at all. Um, never pitched in the National League because he hasn't pitched for the Dodgers last year. Um, what do you think? I mean, would you rather one or the other, or does it matter? I would. That's one that would intrigue me. I mean, just because it kind of comes full circle. Now, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the pushback on that's going to be, well, he had his chance 
he could have signed here yeah. and yeah. you know Boston blew him out of the water you know as far as money way overpaid but yeah I would love to see that I I mean I feel like that's another one of those players that you could probably draw a line between that player and St. Louis in some fashion you know Arnado's one of them you know yeah. that's uh you know one of those guys I would be intrigued it would really surprise me if that was even in the books and or even you know, something that could happen, but I would like to to see that happen. And that would probably be my option to do, especially if they're paying a, a large majority of the contract. Yeah. I mean, boy, I don't, I don't know. I'm price is intriguing. you right. Like because of that, because of he was almost here one time and you know that he didn't look, it doesn't look like he has a no trade right now from what I can tell. Um, he's also has no deferred money, which is a little bit interesting as well. He has, um, and Boston's paying some of his salary. I don't know. I don't know the, the, the dynamics of that. Um, you know, whether that was last year or um, if that was a lump sum. I, I, you know, I don't know what that is. Um, I think I'd go either way. I do feel like they need some sort of insurance. Um, you know, so many question marks. Well, um, you know. And that's on top of the question marks of the total. 2020 hangover question marks right. where guys just can't throw that many innings. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. I mean, cause there nobody built up up and, you know, they have guys like Alex Reyes and Genesis Cabrera that, you know, they can build them up somewhat too, you know, and do a little bit of that piggybacking this year if we need to. Um, but having a guy that can go out there and, and be a, a veteran that, can be effective. Um, you know, like I said, both of those guys, neither one of them pitched in the National League, so they're facing some new batters, obviously not like it used to be. Um, uh, you know, I could go either way, I think. Um, I would like to see them get somebody. Carlos Martinez had a good start in the Caribbean series. There's some optimism maybe there. And we know if Carlos is on, I mean, he's going to be really, really good. Yeah. It's just been a while since he's been really, he's been on as a starter. So I just, I realized that if they sign somebody that that guy might wind up in the bullpen. And so that makes it difficult. You're right. For those, some of those guys that have always been starters. Do you, do you sign them that way? And if so, and what if everybody's healthy and pitching well, do you, do you go with the six man rotation? I, there's a lot of different questions there. And so they may not do that, but boy, I kind of like to see something like that. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be awesome. I, I just, like to hear and confirm from good sources that they are looking. Yeah, this is true. So, um, all right. Well, we've gone quite a bit longer than normal, but uh, again, so much going on. Um, Alan, I don't know. You know, last I looked, and it was just an, earlier this week, I could not find a date for the Cardinals to report to spring training. I know some pitchers and catchers are reporting around the 16th or 17th. I, yeah, I, I believe it's the 17th. Okay. I hadn't, like I said, the one site I went to still had it TBD, um, but part because I guess nobody really knew what the season was going to be like, but it looks like we're going to go from the beginning and see how that works. And uh, so if that's the case, we got uh, another show next week before spring training really kicks in. Next week, we're talking to Brendan Schaefer. Um, So if you uh, know Brendan, I'm sorry, um, but uh, no, we'll have Brendan on, and, uh, and we'll talk about what's going on and, and see if if he's going down to spring training and when that may be. I know we've seen Jeff Jones talk about it on Twitter. A lot of those we talked about it. I think some with us as well. How 
a lot of those journalists have kind of been, you know, up in the air and not necessarily booking anything until they knew. So we'll see if he's got his uh, travel plans and everything ready by the time we talk to him next week. So until then, that is Alan. I'm Daniel. Good night. Good night. They just won't go away.